Welcome back to Life on My Terms, a podcast dedicated to helping you become the best version of yourself and take charge of your life. In the podcast, I sit down with experts in health and wellness, all the way to relationships, career, and life advice. My goal is simple, to empower you to be your best self, become 1% better every day, and achieve everything you want in this thing called life. I am your host, Amy Mongeta, at Life on My Terms podcast on Instagram, and before we jump into today's episode, please remember to rate and review the podcast via your platform of choice. And if you're loving it, please share with your friends and family. Today, I'm sitting down with registered dietitian, speaker, and author, Dahlia Kinsey, to chat about self-image struggles and how to solve them. We're going to go deep into why we struggle with body image, how our childhood and society can greatly affect us, and Dahlia's perspectives and expertise are so appreciated. So let's jump in. Hey, Dahlia, welcome to Life on My Terms podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great. Really excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So first things first, always, I love for guests to introduce themselves to the listeners. My name is Dahlia Kinsey. I'm a holistic registered dietitian and the author of Decolonizing Wellness. My work overall is always centered on LGBTQIA plus and BIPOC people, that's Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And what I really love the most is working with people who fall into both categories because there's like unique concerns that come from being ostracized from multiple communities. Oh, no, that's fantastic. So glad you're here and you have your work focused there. And we'll definitely dive in more on that because I'm dying to find out some more information there. Um, But we are today going to kind of focus talking about body image. Um, I feel like more and more folks are just so, they feel so much shame around the topic of body image. And, you know, it can cause so a wealth of issues around food and just um, even being comfortable to go to the beach or go outside with friends or be around people. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about what is body image. It's really how you relate to your body, how comfortable you feel, regardless of environment, because there's definitely situations where you can feel the power dynamic is off and not in your favor. And maybe that'll make you feel more insecure in your body or more self-conscious. But then there's some issues that seem to follow us no matter where we are. So sometimes how comfortable you feel with yourself could be dependent on the environment you're in. And sometimes that feeling of not being at home in your body or not feeling your body is acceptable follows you everywhere you go. Wow. So what about our thoughts? What sort of thoughts are folks having if they're struggling with body image issues? That their worth or their ability to access love, affection, belonging is tied to what they look like. And it isn't even just people who are in bodies that are not celebrated in the media that are having this experience. Virtually everyone is having this experience. You even see when movie stars are talked about in tabloids or in the media in general, people will pick their bodies apart. And so you know that this person has a body that's considered ideal by the dominant culture, but even those people have to deal with people saying, well, this individual part of your body is not good enough. So it's a general culture of undermining the human body and treating it like it's a collection of parts instead of one thing that houses a complex human being who's innately worthy of love and belonging. Oh, it's just so sad. I I often wonder sometimes what it must be like to be a celebrity just scrutinized down to what our thumbs look like. I remember poor Megan Fox, all there was all this yeah. terrible stuff in the media and you're just like, "Gosh, come on." <laughs> yeah, talk about just really picking people apart. I do think about that specifically cuz I don't know why in my head it was a toe or something, but I'm thinking 
who's looking at their body <laughs> that way? But with enough training, almost everyone you see already in people who are in elementary school, disordered eating patterns and really, really little kids. And you wonder, where did you get the idea that you should even be concerned about your body? Because I know for me in elementary school, I still didn't really feel any gap between who I was and the body. It was just the thing that you go through life in having adventures, not something for you to pick apart or try to change. It just was. But because this messaging is so pervasive, very small children are already wondering, like, is my body good enough? Am I following the rules of the whatever culture I was born into about how to make sure my body is correct? When mm -hmm. ideally, you know, we shouldn't have to worry at all about whether the body is right or wrong. It just is. Yeah. Um, I assume that social media makes this sort of worse. I, I could not believe just a couple of weeks ago when school started, I was scrolling through and I saw this mother who had facetuned her daughter's face. And I oh. thought to myself, Oh my gosh, why would you do that to your daughter? You know, so I just think that between all these gizmos and gadgets and like yeah. this facade of just perfection where it, you know, it, it's unbelievable, really. It's so interesting to me that a, a parent would do that. But at the same time, what people try to teach their children is how to thrive in the world that they're in, not the world that they wish they were in. So maybe in that mom's world, controlling your appearance or projecting a certain appearance is key to her survival. And she wants her daughter to know how to do that too. But still, that's really sad. Like <laughs> you would think that we would so overtly pile on to the negative messaging people are getting from the media in our own homes and in our own families. But I, I know all the time people who haven't done any work on their own self-acceptance accidentally mm -hmm. perpetuate this in their families. And even if you're telling your kid, you're perfect, you know, don't, don't worry about what the other kids say. But then they see you standing in the mirror, critiquing yourself, pinching things that you think shouldn't be there, lamenting how aging is changing your body. You are teaching them that only certain kinds of bodies are acceptable and that even their body will only be acceptable for a limited period of time. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's wild and crazy. I guess I would love to, since, you know, sort of an expert in this topic, you know, why do we, as humans tend to put so much weight on what others think of us. Um, I, I'm curious your thoughts there. Always mind boggling to me because I generally don't tend to have that mentality. I do not care very much. But I'm wondering, like, why is that such a case? And again, social media doesn't make it any yeah. better. <laughs> I think for a lot of people, or maybe for most people, it kids subconsciously be tied to safety because you think we're such social beings mm -hmm. and in a different type of social setup or situation, being ostracized from your immediate family, being ostracized from your community could be a life or death thing. Now at this point, you know, even if your birth family abandons you, which happens to people all the time, there are other people out there. There are other people who might end up being like your close friend circle, your chosen family circle that will support you and you'll thrive and do well with them. But it still feels like you're going to die. It feels like a life or death issue a lot of times when you're rejected or you're called mm -hmm. out or you're told that you're doing something that the group said is wrong. And so that really becomes a challenge when it doesn't just feel like your safety is at risk. What if your safety is at risk when you don't follow whatever the rules are of the culture you were born into. So there are people, not as much in the United States, but in other countries where if you come out of the closet, like that could be a death sentence. If you present your true gender, that could be the end of your ability to hold down a job. That actually is a thing here in the United States mm -hmm. as well. So for some people, it 
is just that feeling that this is putting them at risk. And for other people, it's actually tied to trauma. And it doesn't have to happen directly to you. When you see something violent or something terrible happen to someone who has a marginalized identity that you also have, that could be enough for you to be absolutely overwhelmed at the thought of doing anything that could put you at risk. And so your reaction may be a 10, even if what's going on is a one, because Mm -hmm. that fear is so deeply embedded in you, which is your body just trying to make sure you survive and you stay safe. But sometimes your body's reaction (laughs) and what you wish your brain and body would do is not the same thing. Yeah, I know. If we only could align them more regularly. (laughs) So I guess from your opinion, where does the poor body image stem from? Is it typical? I mean, you mentioned earlier, it's starting earlier and earlier, but is there a particular place that it sort of starts on average? And, and what is it? Why does it like, why are we suddenly just having a poor body image or very concerned about body image? I think it's everywhere. I think it isn't even just when I say media, I don't just mean like television shows, movies. Mm -hmm. I also mean the news. I mean, you can hear the fat phobia and how people will cover things based on their own bias, but then also based on what's considered socially acceptable bias. So even during COVID, the way a lot of people were covering who was dying during COVID the underlying message was, but this is their fault because they didn't have to have these pre-existing conditions, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, good luck to any of those people who believe that. And now they're living with disability, which is Mm -hmm. a, you know, a thing that has happened to a lot of people (laughs) through the pandemic. A lot of us have had to come to terms with our own ableism. I mean, that is also a form of this negative view of any type of body that doesn't fit whatever people have said is the ideal. That's all connected. So when you buy into any part of that, it's harmful to you. Being a disabled person, now that is a minority status that you can join at any time. People don't think about it. They're always thinking like, oh, people are born with these conditions, blah, blah, blah. But it runs the gamut and it can happen to anyone at any time. So being an ableist is not the move for your own well-being and for the well-being of people around you. But in addition to that, it's in the school system. Yes. It's on the jobs. It's at the doctor's office. There are so many examples of people going in for treatment because they're in extreme pain and all the physicians would do or the whoever saw them. Maybe it was a you know, a nurse, who knows, but all people would do is focus on their high BMI and people have been sent home with broken feet. People have been sent home with Mm. a blood clot on its way to, you know, their lungs. Like there have been so many cases where because someone was fat, they could not access a genuine thorough assessment at the doctor's office. So if it's, In the public health system, if it's in the medical system, if it's all over your family, every time you get together for family events, they're usually centered around food. But at the same time, everybody's moaning and groaning about how their body's bigger than it was last year. And then we saw everyone concerned about their COVID-15 and the media reinforcing that weight gain could be dangerous in relation to COVID. When for me, a lot of that stuff seems really unsubstantiated. How do we know that we aren't seeing higher death rates? Because if you go to the doctor in a fat body, they're going to tell you to lose weight, even if you're there with a gunshot wound, right? Like you can't seem to get people to look at you and pay attention to what you're actually saying. So of course that would result in more people dying, but that's not the individual's fault. That's a systemic fault. And that is a longstanding trend in the U.S. And maybe this happens in other countries as well, but this is the country I know the best, (laughs) where we love to blame the individual for something that is clearly bigger than the individual. No doubt. 
That is true. I also, I, I was, I was listening to you chat just about like the, the fat shaming side of things. But then I started to think about with body image in general, I, you know, I'm, I'm a marathon runner and I always find there's a few collective folks that get in this perceived idea that the more weight they lose, the faster mm. they're going to be. And the body image just takes over and they end up on borderline like anorexia, bulimia. They're starting to do like way, unhealthy techniques. And the ironic thing is, is that for a period of time, people are always complimenting them. Like you look mm. so good. You look so good when they are extremely unhealthy. Yeah. While they're literally killing themselves yes. and everyone is reinforcing it saying, good job, good job. And it's really sad that a lot of people with eating disorders, no one is concerned until they're in the hospital. Yes. And by then, I mean, the window where they would have been most likely to respond to treatment is way in the rear view. And it's interesting, even if you have unintentional weight loss because you're ill, you'll have that same experience. Like you feel like you're dying and everyone keeps saying you look great. <laughs> you're like, what are the chances that that's true while I feel like this, right? Because I had that experience with my thyroid <sighs> disorder there was a time period where I have Graves' disease. So at the early stages, it's really, really hyperactive. It took mm -hmm. forever to get it diagnosed, like literally <laughs> what felt like a lifetime. But then when my weight loss was uncontrolled and I didn't, it didn't matter how much I ate, I could wake up in the middle of the night to eat and the weight just would not stop falling sure. off. People kept saying how great I look and strangers would ask me. I mean, it was so over the top, Amy. I, I just wish people could have heard it. Like, oh my God, are you a model? I'm five, four. Obviously, what am I modeling? But I was a very bony five, four and people kept asking about it. And, but I felt so physically ill. It just really started to give me rage that people can see how sick I was. And I was spending so much time seeking out medical care and no one could seem to figure out what it was, which I, I'm, I'm sure not everybody was blinded by their own biases. Maybe mm -hmm. they just genuinely weren't familiar with the disorder. But when I finally was diagnosed, I had 15 out of 16 of the symptoms, which to me says something must have been wrong. Like, how could I keep coming in explaining to you, just handing it to you and you couldn't figure it out. And once your thyroid kind of burns itself out, then your metabolism may swing in the opposite direction and you'll have uncontrolled weight gain. Well then, oh, everybody's so concerned. Are you okay? Like, how's your health? It's like, I was still dying, still dying. Okay. But... <laughs> I was just as sick when my weight was low and I'm still out here trying to get a diagnosis. So it's very, very frustrating to know that there are people out there who don't think they're saying anything mean or hurtful, mm -hmm. who are contributing to people's poor body image. Even when you compliment somebody who's trying to lose weight and it may make them happy because they wanted to lose weight and you say they look so great, that's still not a positive thing because yeah. the body should just be allowed to be neutral because what if something happens and they gain all the weight back and then some, and by something, I mean <laughs> life because yeah. that's generally the trajectory of dieting is that it promotes weight gain. So if you go into this diet feeling like your body's not quite acceptable, but you think, oh, it's five pounds away from being acceptable. And then everyone gives you all this praise. And then the praise dries up as you start to weight cycle. Then how does that make you feel? I mean, the dieting was already going to mess with your head. But having everyone essentially tell you your fears are confirmed. Mm -hmm. You don't look acceptable this way, you know, it, even though none of them said anything nasty about the weight gain, the absence of compliments is a very powerful message. Yeah, I actually put a ban in my family. Not sure it's easy for my mom and dad who have like been programmed to do this, but I'm like, we're not complimenting anyone anymore about their weight. 
mm. not weight loss, nothing. We're, we're not complimenting anymore because you're right. It, there's so much underlying. And again, you don't know if this person is going the whole other way where they are struggling with now an eating disorder mm -hmm. where I wonder if the compliments fuel that like I'm on the right track mentality, which is yeah. not good. Yeah, I, I would think it must fuel it. It must support it. And it must be so confusing, especially if you're a child with an eating disorder. Yeah. All the conflicting messages. Because what people encourage you to do changes suddenly when you're hospitalized. So the yeah. exact same behaviors that they would recommend to someone that they perceive as heavy, which is ignoring your appetite, severely restricting that is not the recommendation for someone who's so underweight, they've had to be put on tube feedings, right? But you can tell there's going to be a disconnect there. Mm -hmm. How do you change that value on a dime? Wouldn't it be more sensible to always encourage people to look to their body for cues, to use gentle nutrition? Like, you know, the general rules eat vegetables, yeah. you know, it doesn't uh, have to be super complicated. Uh, even just trying to eat vegetables at every meal can make a huge difference in your level of satisfaction. So that isn't something hard and fast. It doesn't require counting. It doesn't require obsession. And something like that would be more helpful to tell children before they get obsessive about controlling their intake. But it can get even more complicated if the child is trying to control their intake because something else is going on with their body image. Not everybody is born cisgender. So mm -hmm. if you are a trans person, going into puberty can be really traumatic for you. Gosh. So I guess this is a perfect time to ask, you know, what are the societal stigmas around body image? across all body image, you just mm. mentioned an example, what, what are some of the societal stigmas that sort of keep us trapped um, in this mm. like whole obsession over our body? Overall, what I notice is that, especially here in the US, we have limited ourselves to one ideal body. And there's a hierarchy beneath that for everyone who is not that ideal. And so the ideal is white, able-bodied male, mm. not poor. <laughs> <laughs> and that I would say is part of it too. It seems like something you wouldn't factor in, but you know, you can tell there's so many class markers that are related to the body. So especially for straight haired people, if you don't get your hair cut or trimmed every two weeks, every three weeks, people can really see that. And it's not considered part of the ideal. And you may be treated differently because of it, depending on where you are and what the situation is. So then if you go even farther away from that, and that's a fake ideal, it's obviously man-made. Um, white supremacy is not awesome, in case people were wondering. <laughs> but if you are assigned female at birth and you can strongly feel that like that isn't really who you are and you start to feel really uncomfortable when um, your body starts to change and not just uncomfortable with physically feeling like that your body is becoming unrecognizable, but with how the rules that society applies to you has suddenly changed. How overnight you go from someone whose body is their own, you're supposed to go around, play, have fun, do things that light you up and engage you, mm -hmm. to you're supposed to be seen by everyone. And your body is to be consumed by everyone. And that when you're harassed, teachers are going to play it down and say that's just what they do. You know, even in 2022, you know, that's still most people's yeah. experience is that your body is no longer your own if you're signed female at birth and you've gone into puberty and beyond just the sexism and experiencing what it is to live in a world that values male bodies over female bodies, you also see the colorism among non-white people and how much people will glorify and celebrate lighter skin because it's closer to the ideal of white 
And it just causes so many issues. You see people spending a ton of money trying to lighten their skin, um, constantly wanting to straighten their hair if they're going into an environment where they imagine tightly coiled hair is going to be perceived as less valuable. And there are certainly lots of situations in the United States where people have been fired because they wanted to wear their hair natural or been disciplined or sent home from school because they were wearing their hair natural. And that is not something that happens to little blonde girls with straight hair. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, who mm-hmm. in the world would tell a, a kid with straight hair, like, <laughs> You can't wear your hair straight here. Like, what does that even mean? You see, like, we have no context to understand a world in which that would be considered a negative thing. But if you're born with very tightly curled hair, then you know that there are lots of times when people make comments about maybe your hair not being professional, but professional based on what? Based on that ideal we mentioned. And even the type of energy that people accept in a professional office environment, it's again based on that ideal. So don't bring too many emotions into this space. You know, we're all about masculine energy here or toxic masculine energy at that because plenty of masculine people are very expressive, right? But that isn't celebrated. So it's all man-made rules and these may shift a little based on what part of the country you live in and based on your own family. But because we're all consuming a lot of the same media, the -hmm. whole country has been socialized in a very similar way. And it's happened to literally all of us. So whether you were born into that ideal body or not, we've all gotten very similar programming about who is the most valuable. And when you focus on the ableism part of it, being in a fat body and being disabled, those two things are often kind of maligned at the same time. So even if you're born into that ideal and something happens and you have a lot of weight gain, you will sense your loss of status and it's palpable. You will know that you're being treated differently because of something you can't control. You literally can't miss it. Yeah. No wonder this is affecting younger, younger and younger kids. I actually was just thinking back to um, the old Disney movies. They always had this like feeling to them now that you're older and you realize um, it's like damsel in distress mentality, mm. right? The, the, the woman was always, the princess was always sort of doing everything they could to achieve the, the male figure. And it's sort of just like, there was hardly any diversity across the princesses. You had this perfect physique, you know, this, but this beautiful woman constantly like, like Ariel, yeah. she sacrificed her one you know, natural born skill for a man she had never even met. (laughs) Exactly. And what's so interesting, all those movies, you notice they never have a meaningful conversation with the princess. They're just in love. And it's like, okay, so how does one fall in love without a conversation? Oh, it must be about what they look like. Cause Uh I mean, she literally couldn't talk to Eric. Uh So (laughs) what's he falling in love with? It's beyond ridiculous. And even the way Ursula is obviously the more interesting character in that movie in particular, but she's maligned. Like she's out here single. She's fat. She's independent. She's the bad person, right? (laughs) It is so terrible. Like all the messaging you can read into Disney movies. Yeah, it really is. And it just makes you think. When when some people get really sensitive, when you tell them like, hey, unconscious bias is a real Mm -hmm. thing that we all have to work with. People feel like, oh, you're telling me I'm a bad person. I did something bad. Well, who of us knew we were being programmed while we were watching (laughs) Disney movies? And there's a lot in there. Like there's hidden. Well, now I don't think it's so hidden. But when we were kids, it was hidden to us. The anti-Semitism and the racism. And so often, even in their animal characters, they will code them as a specific group. And sure, maybe that's not their skin color, but message received. Like you think about the crows and Dumbo. I mean, come on. It's, they really went there. And even Ursula is suspicious of the purple skin. It's like, who does that usually, you know, mm-hmm. 
depict. So it's, it's very interesting. So there's no need for us to feel like we did something terrible because we've been brainwashed. This started before we had the ability to filter these things out. You know, as a child, you're just a sponge. And we assume that what everyone is teaching us is all crucial information. <laughs> so as an adult, you have to question it and wonder like, well, where does all of this come from? Yeah. And why would I immediately assume just glancing at Ariel and glancing at Ursula, why do I assume Ariel's probably the nice one? Like, where did that come from? When Ariel's so super boring and yeah, <laughs> and she needs some therapy. Like, what do you mean you're giving up your voice for this? I man? You know. <laughs> oh, the, the lessons we teach young girls based off the old Disney movies, Gaston yeah. too. He, she's not be, Bella's oh, not yeah. being mean to Gaston. He is bursting into the house and forcing her to do things she doesn't want to do. Yeah. It, it's really disturbing when you look back at some of these. It's like that theme. Oh, I hope you can't hear that. No, it's, we're good. Sounds like a bus song. Okay. <laughs> but that theme that you can pursue a woman who says she's not interested in you. But if you continually pursue her, she will be yours by the end of the movie. That's generally the message. Whether you had to kidnap her or like... <laughs> Uh, imprison her because even the beast, what do you mean? You're not letting this woman, it's not her <laughs> fault that you have been cursed. What does this have to do with her? But you're just going to like go the false imprisonment route. And eventually she's going to warm up to you and fall in love with you. That doesn't make sense. And think of how that is a way that you can teach rape culture to young yeah. boys. I mean, it's insidious. It's literally, everywhere yeah it's wild and mind-blowing um speaking of i guess teaching not so great habits and brainwashing what about diet culture it's probably my least yeah. favorite topic but um why are we still to this moment in time wrapped into the diet culture and the norms of diet mm. culture i think it's really all connected to how much money it's making people and unfortunately, we see this in a lot of areas in our culture, people are not mm -hmm. as important as profit. Like this is an ongoing yes. issue. Even, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a show, it's on Hulu now, about the early stages of the opioid epidemic. And it just plays out exactly as things always play out here in the States. Like that particular story just keeps repeating itself of a company knowing full well that they're doing people harm, but they can't walk away from just the piles of money that they're going to be making off of the literal dead. Even people who pretended they didn't know that cigarettes were harmful for people. Yeah. You know, I mean, some of the um, meeting transcripts that have been revealed over time, people totally understood that they were uh, controlling the population by acting as though they were harmless and pushing them on children. So I think even though sometimes it's hard for people who aren't like that to accept that that's actually kind of normal and predictable behavior here in the States, that just because something's everywhere doesn't mean it's harmless it means it's making someone a lot of money. That's all it means. Mm -hmm. And if we could just remember that and remember like companies literally don't care about you and they don't care about your health. And so even when there's like a major push and people are saying, oh, we're trying to do this thing to help these low income people lose weight because we're just so concerned about their weight. If that was actually true, if they were really just so concerned about someone's well-being, there wouldn't be enough funding probably to get it done. Because, yeah. you know, there are people out there who genuinely just want to help yeah. others. And what are they? They're broke. They're struggling. They're constantly <laughs> trying to fund initiatives out of pocket. You know, it's really hard to get people to be interested in doing something genuinely altruistic. That's just not a common thing mm -hmm. that we see culturally here because we're trained to think of ourselves in such an individual individualistic way we think if we're having success then we're done yes. and we've also been trained to think people are the authors of their own problems and sometimes sure we are but 
we are trained to not believe people when they try to say something's happening to me that's bigger than me that I can't control. Like we don't want to sit with that possibility that sometimes you can't fix everything and sometimes you're powerless and you have no control. I mean, think of how most of us just fully rejected the existence of the pandemic because we didn't want to accept like, yeah. oh, this is totally out of my control. So some people were just like, you know what? It's not happening. It's just not, <laughs> not even happening. So I think that's a normal human thing. The way we've responded to our socialization as Americans and that hyper individualistic stance is really toxic to community in general. If we understood that our well-being is all interconnected, mm -hmm. then of course it wouldn't make sense to put profit over people because that's profit over your own well-being. But most people don't see it that way. No, I don't. I think you hit. I think you hit on something key there. I agree. I also wonder to myself sometimes when I see these new fads. I'm like, does anybody have like? Are they losing the part of their brain that's like, if this really could happen so quickly in three days? I mean, something has got to be too good to be true here, you know? It's I really think. fascinating if you look back at some of these old um, dieting trends or. Uh -huh body modification trends. I mean, there was a time when people were literally selling tapeworms in pill form <laughs> and people took it and people took it. I mean, it's just like, and I'm sure with the marketing that was around it, it sounded like a miracle cure and sure, it sounded yeah. like, oh, it's natural though. Cause you can get tapeworms <laughs> out of the world. Like, oh my God, but people don't want tapeworms. And it's, it's sad, but it's to the point that some people, you know, Instead of it just being like this crazy thing they did that they look back on, that's the last thing they ever did. Because what happens if you have out of control tapeworms? It's not good, right? No. It's going to be no, malnutrition. Like no, there's a reason no. why people in other parts of the world really don't want tapeworms. Like just knowing that we sold them in pill form in the U.S. Really like, you know, it's just we got to be more skeptical about anything that we see marketed here anything sold here, the fact that there are laws that tell companies like you can't just straight up lie to the consumer. And the fact that people still will dance around those laws and find ways to manipulate and confuse us. It, you just really have to be cautious when you're trusting people who are selling snake oil, basically. You betcha. You betcha. So I wonder how you would say body positivity and food freedom are linked since obviously diet culture is spreading these food rules and all of this like restriction. So if we think about body positivity and food freedom, how are those two kind of going hand in hand? Yeah. If you're able to stop demonizing certain types of food, and actually listen to what your body wants, what it responds well to, you may find that a lot of times the foods that are demonized in general by people who are hyper-focused on restriction or who've maybe taken healthiness to the point that it seems disordered, mm -hmm. who, who claim it's not a diet, right? Who will say, oh, this is just a lifestyle thing. But it has all of the signs of being a diet, like you said, the restriction and some foods are red light foods and others are considered safer. Once you can break away from all that, you may find how much your body doesn't follow those rules. And one perfect example is, and we've seen this happen in cycles, you know, sometimes certain macronutrients will go out of style. So by a macronutrient, I mean like carbs have gone in and out of style, fats gone in yes. and out of style, protein goes in and out of style. But in reality, the body needs all of those. Yes. And your body really, really needs carbs. Like that's your brain's preferred energy source. And of course, your brain's not going to say, you know what, forget it. I'm leaving if you refuse to give it any carbs. But it has to go through extra hoops to try and get energy out of protein. So if you abandon the food rules, and let's say you've been eating low carb for years, and you've been grouchy because it causes mood swings, and you've been really struggling to focus, you may find that when you say, you know, I'm just going to eat what feels good to me, that suddenly your energy majorly improves 
as you eat more high quality carbs. I mean, there are people out there trying to eat less than 20 carbs a day who won't eat fruit, who are afraid of some vegetables. You're like, are we, have we really created a norm that fruit is bad? I'm like, oh my gosh. How many times people tell me I cannot have fruit. It has too much sugar. And I'm like, okay, stop. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It really, it's fascinating to me how many people have definitely turned their back on fruit, but they will eat products that are kind of, um, health washed, like the labeling really makes them think this is something great. Oh, this is organic. Like, which obviously doesn't change the amount of calories that are in something. And they'll eat that coming out of a box, but they are distrustful (laughs) of apples or they think that apples are full of poison. Like I do understand people being afraid to eat a bunch of pesticide, but at this point, I mean, it's sad. Like you hate to even... (laughs) I hate to even be this realistic about it, but I'm like, we are so full of poison right now. (laughs) I don't even think we need to be worried about the apples. Because when you think about like the stuff we put on our skin that maybe shouldn't go on our skin, all of the products out there that people say, you know, are, are safe in certain amounts Usually when you have to prove that a product is safe, you don't have to prove that it's safe in the real world. You have to prove that in isolation, it would be safe. But none of us are living in a vacuum, right? So all of our products are interacting with each other. So Uh we have all gone way beyond what is considered a safe level of poison. So (laughs) just eat the apple. Like all of those foods that have natural sugar, they are packaged with fiber and that really slows how long it takes for your body to process it. So you're not going to have a crazy blood sugar spike from eating something full of fiber with some natural <laughs> sugar in it. Uh, the, the, I also get so <laughs> shocked that the whole 90s low fat craze is still going on. You're just like, yeah. oh, come on, how many times do we have to prove this does more harm than good? Well, and it's really disturbing because people, if people were to on their own say, you know what, I'm just not going to use as much oil in my cooking. I'm not going to fry as much. And I'm just going to be eating recognizable food. Then, okay, fine. But that's not how anybody does the low fat thing. They buy all these special products that have additional weird chemicals that have been added to attempt to make it for the loss of flavor. Like people like fat because it is an excellent flavor carrot. So if you take it out, you got to put something else in there. Uh, People aren't just going to like eat cardboard. So then you put a bunch of other stuff in there that is not health promoting to try and make it for the fat you took away. It, it's, it's a mess. It's like only, I say only in America, but again, I think, I think that cause I'm not from someplace else, but just to see how we will create problems and then sell the solution to the same problem. Yeah. It's fascinating. It really is. And I, I don't know, I venture to say when I was in Europe for a long period of time, some of these things were not the same, but we can leave our assumptions mm. here in the podcast. Well, you know what I think w- makes sense? Like, let's say you're helping someone pay for their health care, mm-hmm. if that's yeah. how your oh, government rolls. Right. Well, then it doesn't pay to let people make them sick. So right there, you know, I, I think we've got a problem with how we've set things up over here. Good point. Um, That is a really great segue into your book. So congratulations, Decolonizing Wellness. I'm super excited. I actually ordered a copy, so I can't wait to read it myself. Um, But I would love for you to chat a little bit about what you cover in your book, specifically around the lack of the BIPOC LGBTQ representation in the fields of health and nutrition that's led to repeated racist and unscientific beliefs um, that negatively affect these folks. Yeah, a lot of people still think that race is a scientific thing when it is actually a social 
construct. And you know, it's a social construct just from like a layman's perspective. If you can take a flight and your race changes, what does that tell you? Like it's (laughs) clearly not real. (laughs) And um, so many people for so long have had it presented to them as though it is real, even in healthcare training settings that people believe it's real. So when I go to the doctor, I have to deal with people who've been trained to believe black people don't experience pain the same way that white people do. Like that has been taught to people as recently as like the last 10 years in university settings, you know, that you shouldn't give me painkillers because one, I'm prone to addiction and two, I'm lying. I'm not really in pain. Right. So that leads to a less than ideal birthing experience for a lot of black femmes. Yeah. And then on top of all of that, you find that people are not trained to care for individual difference that are real. Like, Skin color is a real difference. A lot of people are not trained to identify bruising on dark skin. They're not trained to um, be able to see cancer on dark skin. So a lot of things I was told growing up in the 80s and the 90s that like, oh, you don't need sunblock. That is not accurate. But people said that for years because in their mind, it was like, you're so... You're so dark, you can possibly be susceptible to sun damage, like, or y'all don't feel pain anyway, or, you know, that somehow you are super strong. Like that is carryover from the transatlantic slave trade and just like the lies that people told themselves to justify the horrific things they were doing to other human beings. And even though people don't want to think of their current healthcare system still pulling on information from the transatlantic slave trade, number one, wasn't that long ago. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it, there are multiple things that we rely on heavily now that really grew during the transatlantic slave trade, like modern gynecology. A lot of the experimentation, they did that on enslaved women. And you would want to tell yourself that like this person, well, it's not a person according to, you know, people back then, they're not experiencing pain. I'm not giving them any anesthesia and I'm performing surgery on them. You know, they must not be experiencing pain because they didn't die. Well, you know, when you're really under extreme physiological distress, your body for the sake of survival is going to start shutting things down. By no means does that indicate that you didn't experience pain. You got to a point where your body could no longer process the pain. Like you're out of your mind with pain and maybe just lost consciousness. But that's gynecology. Like that's the roots of gynecology. And even there were years where people said that Africans had poor lung health. And so Mm -hmm. they needed intense labor, that it was good for them. Well, there are still some tests that look at Black American lung capacity. The assumption is it will be lesser. And that's directly where that came from. Uh, So you really, (laughs) you have to question how well can a system that hasn't reconciled its extremely racist roots and hasn't removed it's racist assumptions from research. How well can these systems care for people who aren't white? When every time you go in, the person that you're seeing, if this person happens to see you as an individual and happens to understand that all the stereotypes they were told to memorize about people who look like you and their uh, cultural awareness class don't apply to everyone, they only know that because of like their individual ability to reason, not because they were trained to know that. So it's a real crapshoot. Like every time you go to the doctor, you don't know what kind of craziness <laughs> they're going to try to counsel you on. It gets very, very frustrating. Only in the US, only 2% of dietitians are Black. And overall, the Black population in the US is about 13%. So there's a big gap there. It's not reflective of how many black folks are actually in the U.S. And in the training itself, it is so, so centered on diet culture. 
Mm-hmm. Like I really thought we would be all about the science and there were parts of the training that were all about the science. But then when you really got into what people were going to be telling people and counseling, everyone's main concern was weight control. And every time they would talk about minority health, they would always blame poor health outcomes on people's, they would say lack of education, which to me, I heard as, oh, these black people are too stupid to even know how to feed themselves, which is not what they said, but that's certainly what it felt like. And also the assumption was that it's failure to assimilate from a dietary perspective that's doing people harm. And even though in my program, so not diverse, ridiculously not diverse, but there was one woman in the program from the Dominican Republic who self-identifies as black. And I also thought she looked pretty black. Our classmates told us that she wasn't black. So they apparently get to define who's black and who's not black. Oh my gosh. And we were trying to explain to them that she and I both are black, according to us, and that our cultural foods are so totally different that we would like them to explain to us, what are you talking about when you say it's the foods they eat? What does that mean? And so then they basically explained to us that I was black and she wasn't. I was like, okay, well, let's assume that's true. <sighs> I was like, my what, do you, what are you thinking I, I'm eating? What do you know about my food culture? And I tried to explain to them how diverse the African diaspora is, that you can be black American and not have the same food culture as another black American. I'm half, my mother's half Jamaican, half Cuban, both Afro, like Afro-Cuban, mm-hmm. most Jamaicans are pretty, you know, have a lot of African ancestry anyway, <laughs> but still totally different food culture from my father's side of the family. A big emphasis on fresh fruits and vegetables really de-emphasized meat because mm-hmm. meat wouldn't have always been available um, to her mom to her grandma. So anyway, and I just couldn't get them to understand what I was saying at all. And it just made me feel so heartbroken and disgusted for the people who are going to have to pay for their support and they don't have the capacity to support them because they hold them in low esteem. If when you see somebody, you immediately assume this person is ignorant, all the problems they're having, they cause for themselves. Even if you try to like be syrupy sweet and act like you respect that person, get serious. There's no hiding that. And you're never going to come up with a decent solution for that person or anything helpful. No. If those are your assumptions. You're completely useless to that client. That is on, I guess I'm, I'm like sitting over here. I'm like, am I just totally naive or does my brain not work this way? I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like all of of these assumptions are so stupid. I I mean, sometimes I was even shocked. We literally had (laughs) one of our classmates had, um, God, what did she have? I think she had to have a, I mean, kid, she had to have some organ donated. I don't know. And she literally asked in class one day if it was possible that she could have gotten an organ from a non-white person. Like she literally didn't understand that organ compatibility has nothing to do with skin color. I just, but she, she was genuinely, genuinely asking. That's the, that's the freakiest part is when people aren't even trying to be nasty and they just revealed like, Oh, what? I'm sorry. Do you think they're not human. Why would the organs be different? What is wrong with you? That's one characteristic. But people really believe that the color of your skin tells you something about the inside of someone's body. And it does not. I'm just, I'm, I'm probably going to be a little shocked for a day or so after this interview. I'm just like, what is wrong with everyone? Oh my gosh. And they're all leading major decisions in the yeah. country. A lot of these, a lot of these uh, assumptions are guiding principles. So yeah, you wonder how can yeah. we ever break out of this, this sort of racist, um, it's, it's such a systemic problem. It's just. Yeah. It, it's really upsetting. Like I remember what's really funny to me is how for how many years people kept telling me like we were post-racial and I'm like, ah, whatever, like <laughs> that's not a real thing. But 
during the pandemic, I, I, I decided to not throw this man under the bus. I don't know this man, but he was on television. He was a public official. And he said in front of the world that he was wondering if maybe more black people were dying in his state from COVID because of poor hygiene. And that maybe we needed to do more education on hygiene. And as a Black American, I can tell you, uh, <laughs> compared to some of the standards for cleanliness that the rest of America has, we're plenty clean, okay? Above <laughs> and beyond, right? But for him to genuinely think <sighs> there was some chance that Black people had missed the memo on you should wash your nasty hands, right? And that that's why we were dropping, instead of understanding, like, Chronic stress is a pre-existing health condition. Yeah. Racism is essentially a pre-existing yeah. health condition because of how much it could change where you end up being allowed to purchase property and where the city decides to center resources. Like mm -hmm. people are more likely to drop toxic chemicals on the minority side of town. You know, these are things you can't opt out of. If you're there, you're there. Even when my, my husband is white and when we sold our home, we're both from the South. And I feel like there's more awareness a lot of times because the South is more integrated than the rest of the country that you, you understand the world that you live in versus the world we wish we lived in. And so we took down all of our photos because we're like, we're not trying to get screwed on the price because they know a black person lives here. That's really messed up. But hey, I mean, it's been measured. I mean, someone got sued recently because yeah. of changing property value based on who lived in the home. So sometimes you don't even know in how many ways racism is screwing you over. But when something like COVID happens, you realize like it's literally costing people their lives in a lot of instances that not only do you endure the racism, but everyone in healthcare and everyone in health promotion tells you to just ignore the racism. And then that magically is going to remove its effect that it has on you. When in reality, actually facing the problem learning how to manage your grief around it, having community with people who aren't going to tell you that you misunderstood a situation, being around people that are going to validate you, allow you to feel your feelings so they don't get trapped in your body. That's health promoting, but that's not ever what you're told when you seek out the help of most healthcare professionals. Well, thankfully you have written this book, which we will promote to the ends of the earth, because at least you're bringing some light to these situations. I think it's all about re-educating. Yeah. Hopefully if you can get that book in as many people's hands as possible, folks can start to realize that you got some change to make here. Yeah. Yeah. That that's the dream. And anybody who's listening, if you feel like, you know, you have a group that you want to get that book for, whether it's, some group in your community, uh, nonprofit where you're dealing with body image, like anything like that, feel free to reach out. I really want this book to get to as many people as possible. And the publisher does bulk pricing. And I've already seen where people who I would have thought were comfortable not knowing about how negative messaging about the body affects even people who seem to be benefiting, you know, people who look like they're living the life and the idealized yeah. body. A lot of those folks have also found the book's messaging really liberatory because there's a lot of ways in which white supremacy culture is hurting white people, but it's hard to notice. It's like asking a fish to explain what water is, you know, <laughs> it's, it's really hard to see how our well-being is all interconnected. And even when we think we're benefiting from a system that's hurting some people, we're not. Like we, everybody has to give up something in yeah. order for this to work. And <sighs> yeah, it's time to opt out. So many wise words. Well, before we wrap up, I would love it if you can give your final word of your phrase of wisdom um, for anyone out there just really struggling with their body image, their body in general, what advice do you have? It took you years to get to this point of discomfort with your body. So give yourself grace 
as you're trying to get to more positive place in this relationship. And just remember that everything that your body has ever done, it's because it wants you to survive and it supports you. Even when it's not doing the things that you want it to do, it's still there to help you. So you don't have to regard it as an enemy. At, at the most, like maybe <laughs> you have misunderstandings, but it's always there to, to help you. So just be patient with yourself as you try to really internalize that. Oh, I love that. I always try to thank my body for all of the things it does for me every day. Thank you for that. That's wonderful. Lastly, where can I, um, where's the best place to get a hold of you if um, listeners want to contact you? I am on Substack. I mean, you can visit my website, dallykinsey.com, but you could also go straight to the Substack. Substack is a newsletter service that I love. So it's dallykinsey.substack.com. And if you sign up for the newsletter, which is free, you will get the first chapter of Decolonizing Wellness. And there's also a little quick guide to stopping binge eating uh, that you get when you subscribe. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dahlia. It's been amazing chatting with you. I cannot wait to read your book and we will get that book into as many hands as possible. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Bye. Speaking with Dahlia today gave me all the feels. Not only did she touch on some big issues wrong with our society that continually leave us to feel as if we're not okay just being us, but there are terrible disparities among the BIPOC community as it relates to health. Definitely pick up her book, Decolonizing Wellness, so that we can be better informed to make change here. If you have questions, send them my way to Life on My Terms podcast on Instagram or via email at info at personalbestcoaching.net. And until next time, remember you are worthy and capable of anything you want in this life. Take charge and live your life on your terms. Catch you next time.